Welcome to Psychodrama Podcast. I'm Katie Gordon with my co-host. Uh, Leonardo Bobadilla. It rhymes with quesadilla. That sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> and this is our first episode of Psychodrama Podcast. And so we thought we'd start out by just introducing ourselves. I am a clinical psychologist. I currently live in Fargo, North Dakota. And I do research that focuses on suicidal behavior and eating disorders, but my clinical practice is broader and kind of focuses on anxiety, depression, and other types of mental health issues. And I am also a clinical psychologist. I am in Portland, Oregon, and met Katie in grad school. My area of research is mostly, broad, you know, aggression, broadly speaking, and more specifically, psychopathy and associated syndromes like narcissism. And I can maybe talk a little bit about the concept of the show that you just mentioned, or yeah, and then then yeah, I think we both have a, a keen interest in looking at um, societal issues using a psychological perspective, because we think it has, as a science, it has a lot to contribute to the understanding of the whys and yeah, the whys and how people do the things they do. And uh, it's a, it's an interesting, we live in pretty interesting times in order to apply that lens. Some of our conversations have been about our experiences in academia in two very different settings, which you may be familiar with because we both have TV shows based on the places that we live, <laughs> which are 100% documentary You're accurate absolutely right. <laughs> and not <laughs> satirical or exaggerated at all. So for those of you <laughs> who are familiar with Portlandia, the show and Fargo, the movie, uh, will have a mental anchor to think about kind of how the experiences that we've had both in academia are, I mean, I, you're absolutely right. The, the, the shows are definitely exaggerated, but you know, there's a kernel of truth to it. And the, definitely uh, my area is certainly more left leaning liberal. And then the kind of uh, the extremes that it comes with that are associated with that side. Whereas for you, Katie Fargo tends to be more center to you know, right, right of center and any uh, the the more aspects of the culture wars play more on the on the right side of the of the spectrum there I guess, and we've been interested in kind of comparing and contrasting our experiences both in academia and out in the general society in both places. That's right, and some of those discussions led to the idea for today's episode that you came up with, and that I really like because you picked two controversies in areas that we're both really interested in, and that hopefully our our listeners are interested in too. Those two areas are academia and stand-up comedy. So specifically, we'll mainly focus on two people. First, we'll talk about Ronald Sullivan Jr., who's a professor at Harvard Law School. And then after that, we'll talk about Dave Chappelle. Leo, would you mind starting with some of the background on Professor Sullivan's story? He he was a, as they call him, let's see, I want to use the actual title. But so he, uh, Ronald Sullivan, uh, Sullivan Jr., who is a, a law professor, is, remains a professor, a law professor at Harvard. And he was a faculty dean at Winthrop House in Harvard College. He served in that in that capacity for many years. Uh, and uh, he chose to be, he was tapped by Harvey Weinstein's team to represent him. Uh, and uh, after he did that, there was an uproar uh, on campus uh, with a lot of the students calling for him to resign and step down as faculty dean. Uh, he wrote um, uh, a column in the New York Times explaining his rationale. And uh, basically, he makes, a, to me, what seemed to be a very cogent argument for, um, A, for 
the the American justice system, right? He's a law professor, and he's uh, essentially arguing that everybody, no matter how despicable, deserves a defense. Uh, so that's one. And two, that uh, people's feelings, or the students' feelings about feeling unsafe, about him representing somebody who had been accused of a crime, uh, were perhaps um, not based on the reality of, the re of his record. Because that before he made that choice to make a legal representation, he there was never, a, as he put it, a whisper of anybody feeling unsafe because of his, uh, because of him, and now because he was choosing to represent uh, this uh, defendant, who many people uh, rightly so, I would say, um, see as despicable, then that they would it felt unsafe, and it was necessary for him to step down, and eventually, Harvard did acquiesce, and then he stepped down, and he thinks that, that that's wrong. And that really, it, it's a perfect connection to what is happening to a lot of uh, people who may be saying, and you mentioned Kevin Hart, who was made to step down from, was it the Oscars that he was going to host? Um, let's see. I think so. I think it was the Oscars or Grammys, perhaps. But yeah, he was tapped to be, yeah, I think so, because Ricky Gervais, Ricky Gervais mm -hmm. then took over, and then Ricky Gervais went in with a flamethrower. Yeah, the uh, less controversial Ricky Gervais. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And then, which, to Ricky Gervais's credit, right, he points kind of what comedians are good, good comedians are good at doing is it's pointing the hypocritical or the contradictions within people's rationale and making a joke, you know, uh, twisting in a way that it's funny or humorous, even though it might kind of be pointed. He said, yeah, I have made equally controversial. I've gotten, you know, a similar blowback on Twitter about things. And yet Kevin Hart is asked to step down and here I am. And then he duly goes on to um, coincidentally talk about the Harvey Weinstein case and how many of the people who were in the audience were in some way related or talking with and he said you did that you that's your friend and basically and accused all of that and i saw you know some kind of montage that somebody put on youtube later with uh that inter interspersed his speech with a lot of people who were thanking him throughout the years that included people in the audience so it was very interesting so yeah this this parallel between what is happening in pop culture and uh, making uh and canceling people in, in academia who are people people getting in trouble and it's interesting that you mentioned because you i think we're both actually under the same i wouldn't say pressure but we are equally aware of that we're like minding what we're saying regarding things not that we're always you know not not very thoughtful but extra careful within language that we use because we're like the last thing we want is for the twitter universe to for the for the psychodrama podcast to become infamous <laughs> in episode one <laughs> or something that is taking completely although, out of context. Although the name we picked really does invite it. So. <laughs> really, and, and the topics. Frankly, we, actually, yeah, we really should mention that that is exactly, yeah, we're kind of bring, we're doing it to ourselves, quite frankly. <laughs> Congratulations, Psychodrama Podcast Leo and Katie, you were canceled on day one <laughs> because of the topics you chose and uh, what you said about it. <laughs> well, you know I... <laughs> we're out the way we, we did it our way. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let our guest for next week that uh, we won't need him anymore 
<laughs> first and last episode. This hasn't even gone out yet, but mid-recording, <laughs> but let's, let's we can it. read the writing on I the wall. I can really see that we're going to get us in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, like, so like stepping back, and Kevin Hart, if we want to draw parallels there, like, Kevin Hart said hurtful things, right? And so I think a lot of the question is, again, is it is it hypocritical, right? Um, mm. Which you pointed out, Ricky Gervais kind of tried to point that yeah it is because you don't consistently apply these rules um and is it is it overboard kind of thing and i don't know i think a lot of that is a matter of opinion but i think that pointing out that it's not so neat and clean that you can say these people are in the good category and these people are in the bad category Mm -hmm. is useful now in sullivan's case like again i have kind of like a gut response Mm -hmm. like uh, when we think about defending Harvey Weinstein, right? That's uh, a kind of visceral response. Mm-hmm. I can, and even Sullivan said he gets why the students would have um, an emotional reaction to it. He just didn't think that that should be the main deciding factor because part of law is that people have the right, even perpetrators that we find particularly unlikable for good reason, mm-hmm. have the right to have a case defending. You know, the other Harvard faculty wrote this letter into the Boston Globe. There are 52 Harvard Law School professors saying they supported him. So it's not like he was outside of the mainstream of um, legal opinion here and and taking that case. And so I think that's what makes it stand out even more to me about the decision. Um, And his op-ed talks about this. Were there other ways to maybe have discussions about this? You know, were there other things other than not renewing his contract to continue in that role at the Winthrop House? Right. You know, you mentioned a a few things that I I was actually taking notes as you spoke, because there were really good points that I, and one of the things that I, so I'm I'm the director of the forensic track at Pacific University. So I deal with kind of exactly that. This is the intersection between psychology and law. And you and I have talked about this before, and we talked about it during the Kavanaugh hearings uh, in in your former uh, podcast. Um, And uh, I I became really interested in the concept of restorative, one, restorative justice, the idea that, you know, at what point, you know, is there a better way to approach these issues in a way that leaves both the accused and the um, the accuser in, in in better shape? And and the, you know the Kavanaugh case was completely different from the from uh, the Weinstein, which the Weinstein case, uh, all of the, the available evidence suggests and points towards more predatory behavior, whereas the Kavanaugh hearing was a juvenile case. So it's completely different. But I think the point is is that one is that, is there a better way to um, not have that emotional reaction, which is what uh, to you know we can have that emotional reaction, but not let that be the leading factor that makes decisions. And it, this is something we deal in psychology a lot. And I think that um, people like, uh, oh gosh, um, what's, I'm forgetting the, the guy who wrote The Cuddling of the American Mind. Oh, Jonathan Haidt. Haidt, right. So Haidt, I think, alluded to the, to this a little bit, who's a psychologist, social psychologist, is that we should maybe consider as a, as a society in general, kind of just using a lot of the CBT, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy skills, which is, you know, you can have a reaction, but then examine the evidence for your feelings, because not always our feelings are not always accurate, or perhaps, or they're not um, supported by the evidence. And then, 
based on the evidence kind of let reason sometimes also make those decisions so not to invalidate people's feelings per se but or because it's understandable but are uh, basically calling into question are is going through the kind of this gut feeling reaction the better the best way to do it and the point is that even people that we again we find despicable unlikable in our system uh, we believe that they deserve uh, representation and defense uh, and I believe that both as, a, as an advocate of victims of which I've, I've been on that side uh, and I also worked uh, on the other side for people who are the accused perpetrators and I see the value on both to of both places having a, a voice which is why I become increasingly more interested in restorative justice approaches rather than our currently retributive justice system and you know we I've talked more at length on that. We can probably link if you want the, mm-hmm. the, the previous episode and uh, the blog that I wrote about it because that's more about that. But I do think it's it is it, you know what's really and it just kind of hit me how much the the Weinstein, like the Weinstein case seems to be linked to a lot of this. I mean, it really is kind of has um, it's kind of the the I don't know the the only analogy that I'm thinking of is like a black hole that is just kind of engulfs everything and it really is. so the Sullivan Sullivan's Harvard academic freedom issues, uh, the Me Too movement, uh, the comedians talking about it. It's all related somehow Weinstein managed to, and I guess it's not surprising just because he had such an outside influence and contacts all over the place. But yeah, his behavior was just like, it was so egregious and for so many years that, but I think we should definitely link to the restorative justice episode because I I think your point is exactly right that Mm -hmm. there are, there are alternative ways that are more complex than than deciding to not renew someone's contract or not have them host. And that's certainly appropriate in some cases, but the concern is, the same concern, frankly, in um, deciding who gets a defense attorney and who doesn't, is that it's not it's just not going to be fair. Um, and it tends to hurt people if you know for not allowing the same rights for everyone or the same right. policies for everyone, if it's kind of based on more subjective experiences, and maybe it doesn't matter that much for an award show, perhaps, but it, it does matter for the legal system. And, well, so, yeah. Oh, you know, so sorry. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Well, so that's kind of the part that I'm interested in is, you know, it um, regard, you know, how much does, you know, uh, an award show, because I think it's about, you know, how do, what is the effect? What is the actual effect? And I think uh, uh, we as scientists, right, we would like to believe that we follow evidence and we want to know you know, what is the evidence that, you know, having, you know, saying a certain thing actually does have evidence that does have an effect on certain things. And to be fair, that's a lot of times it's very difficult to test, right? Like that's mm-hmm. that, you know, what is the, what is the effect of, uh, you know, a, a, a joke of a certain kind on the oppression of a certain group that is dang near impossible to, to quantify. Um, but it, 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 and again, I'll, with, not sound like a broken record, but that would be an, a question that I would have for Tom Ford, our, our guest next week, to be, you know, what what do the data say regarding, you know, the effect, the magnitude, and uh, how long these effects might might last, um, and is there perhaps uh, that's kind of something that I've seen is is there a um, a beneficial effect to some of these jokes, and people are perhaps familiar with gallows humor and in, in various professions that people have develop different levels of humor in order to deal with adverse uh, with very adverse life events or uh, circumstances 
um, it's, I, I think it's gotten to a point now is it's like who is allowed to make what kind of jokes about whom and how. Absolutely. And I, I would like to talk about some of those rules of comedy. I think one other thing I yeah. might add, because I thought the other point you brought up that was interesting was that, you know, um, Sullivan and his op-ed said, like, the Harvard students having their feelings and reactions, that they're allowed to have them, they're allowed to express them, mm -hmm. they certainly have the right to protest him, his contract being renewed. But then it ultimately falls on, right, the administration, who make a decision in mm -hmm. light of the different factors. So, you know, I think I, I think you're right that it's rather than like, um, I think there's pressure to make a quick decision sometimes when there's a lot of pr press surrounding things. And I don't think that necessarily improves decision making. You know, and I think that it reminded me of uh, in, in, in academia, a lot of the conversations are revolving uh, around shouldn't, shouldn't academia be the place where these type of conversations in, in which people are able to hear each other mm -hmm. uh, in a way that's respectful and in a way that is earnest and curious, right? So I really am curious to what your argument is. And you may have disagreements and you may still leave with those disagreements, but you're not demonizing the other side or, you know, trying to, you're, it, it seems like we have maybe idealistic, this idea that I, academia is a place in which uh, ideas are exchanged and put in a, in a way that is, um, I don't know what the word is. I heard the word that comes is safe, but even that even that word, people are just like, ah, you don't have it to. It becomes make sense. a charge word, but exactly. yeah, a, a productive but it's, yeah, place. It's a productive where, place, and I, yeah, I, I, where your yeah. people aren't being dismissed out of hand exactly. is like you know that your your point of view isn't valid. I think there are valid arguments to be made here, but I think when there's kind of a quick, seemingly quick decision, maybe even more so in the public eye, that I, that I think that that it can it can set. I think a precedent that's bothersome, which apparently many of the other lawyers at Harvard Law thought so. You know, right. yeah, it, it's a tough one because, and I, I like to think of myself as a as a fair minded person, and I really do see the you know both sides of the equation, and I do see myself as the kind of person that's ideal, you know, perhaps idealistic that thinks we should be able to have this these um, these conversations in academia in which people. There's this draw these parallels a lot to probably you know training in psych in clinical psychology for therapy is that you're gonna you're gonna have emotional reactions and you can you know have them uh, but then how do you react to them do you do you do you let your behavior you know because you feel angry you're gonna punch immediately or because or drink or you know whatever maladaptive behavior but are you going to then have that emotional reaction then examine it in a way that may be more productive. Uh, and that's, I think, that what a lot of faculty are lamenting and um, for more liberal campuses. And you alluded this to that both sides are kind of quick to dismiss the other. So it's like, oh, he's just joking or, you know, there's meant no harm versus the other side that says, you know, you, you simply are not paying attention to other people's feelings or what uh, or, or, or you, you know, like you just don't care about people, which is, you know, also perhaps not accurate and not an accurate thing to say. I think when we look at something like comedy and entertainment, to me, that's a totally different realm. There are definitely parallels, but my expectations for comedy are just really different than they are for university. <laughs> you know, like hopefully... Somehow going to, a, going to a ha-ha-ha hole, you have a different expectation than when you go to Harvard? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yes, I know that's very bizarre of me. Um, 
I'm sure many of my classes were. Well, I need to change my delivery in class now because I've been going about it all wrong. So that in of itself, like we read, um, you sent me some great articles that were like critiquing, praising Dave Chappelle's, specifically his um, Netflix special, Sticks yeah. and Stones. And there was a lot of interesting conversation around it. And I think that, you know, there, the main thing, right, there were some, a lot of criticism about it, but there was also, it was popular as far as I understand. Netflix downloads, I think, are hard to access, yeah. but the... Ratings on Rotten Tomatoes or whatever were very good. Right. Um, have you seen Dave Chappelle in person before? No, not in person. I don't think. I think um, it's been a while since I've seen an actual comedian in person. Uh, the last time, actually, probably is, I was thinking about this earlier when you and I went to you and I, with a bunch of friends in grad school. We went to see Stephen Colbert. Oh, that was when great. he came to a festival. It was great, and I was thinking, I'm like. I, a point that I want to make is I lo you mentioned about um, colleges and what should be allowed or not, and, and uh, administrators making decisions. And one of the things that comedians have been saying a lot is that they no longer go to college campuses. College campuses used to go, it used to be a place where comedians were on the road and just kind of their A, they kind of just um, more, they built their chops more, but they were kind of, you know, gigs that were good and then you could be, you could, ex you could push boundaries more because they, the audience was a little more flexible than say kind of the stodgy room uh and and they're saying you know we're not we're no longer doing that because you can't you can't joke anymore so that's kind of a point that we maybe we can bring up with tom next time and see what he thinks because yeah. of what the harm of that that's an interesting one yeah because um, the counterpoint is always like yeah. just because your jokes aren't right. funny exactly. to the new audience yeah. sorry, doesn't mean man. you should blame the sorry, audience carlos, right yeah sorry carlos means yeah it's not that you're edgy it's that you suck <laughs> <laughs> but you know, Colbert actually, I was surprised that they had him because he was, I mean, he did not hold back in criticizing having um, an American Indian mascot at FSU for right. the Seminoles. Like, he. I, I thought that was great. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, we can, shoot, we can even make a whole episode on, on that particular topic. Uh, but I would, as I thought about it, do you remember that he said, uh, yeah, he said, at some point he said that he's like, don't, you know, don't blame me. It's your racism mascot. Exactly. Uh, and, yeah. uh, and so that was, and it was interesting, but again, it was, nobody collapsed. It was interesting. And at some point uh, he, he, he said something about uh, the trail of cheers. Yes. Do you remember this? And I, I, as I, th as I think about this, I'm like, I can't, I can't help but wonder if he could get away with that routine now. Yeah, it's a good question. I don't, no, I don't it's a, know. It's an unknowable. It's an unknowable question, but it it definitely fits fits with that. And you mentioned how Chappelle's special was so successful, and they had all that, and it brought up uh, another psychological um, concept in its reactance, which actually has been tied very much within the Me Too movement. And I've been reading a lot, a little bit about it, because of my. Uh, as the audience doesn't know, but I do uh, risk evaluations for sexual offenders. And, and as part of that, I, I'm steeped in that literature as well. And somebody sent a, a Neil Malamuth, who's a pretty well-known researcher in the area, wrote a paper uh, in which he found that uh, essentially looking at whether some of the interventions in order that, that are aimed at trying to lessen sexual violence may actually be backfiring hmm. among among people who are at the highest risk because of something called reactance and I, you you are you familiar with the term reactance i could take but a refresher you, yeah. 
you can take a break. And it's all reactants refresher. And I have to say that's that's a good thing about psychology. And this is why undergrads think that they just can go in and wing their their the the, the test. It's like I can just deduce from the name of it mm-hmm. what it's about. <laughs> <laughs> but it really, it really is a little bit what it what it means is that. And I think uh, Hyde has actually been talking about it as well. Is that when and we know this from uh, confirmation and availability bias that when the, the stronger you're going to argue against a person who has a deeply held belief on anything, the more tightly they're going to hold on to that. You're going to make more inroads with people who are kind of undecided or somewhere on the fence about a topic. But people who are really convinced and you can have things like, you know, glo- you know, global warming, climate change, etc., uh, there are some people who are their their minds are made up. One, you know, it is not happening regardless of the evidence, um, and arguing, yelling, and saying it, it only it's only going to induce more reactants, i.e., i.e., or th- therefore a, a, a reaction formation in which the person is more going to be less likely to hear and actually create uh, more defenses against it. So it's con- completely counterintuitive. And Neil Malamuth. Uh, went through a series of examples. Um, one of them was in a college campus, in which um, there was a lot of posters that were put, put regarding. It was something. It was something like "Don't be that guy," Just, you know, "Don't be that guy mm-hmm. that is kind of creepy," or "Don't be that guy that does you know film the like you know takes advantage of a person who may be intoxicated, etc." And then uh, he talked about how a lot of them were defaced and uh, said, you know, don't be that girl. Then then changes her mind about having consensual sex mm. and then accuses somebody rape all over campus. And then several of those examples, he went through through the paper. Maybe we can link it if we want because it's really interesting because it's provocative, right? Because we what mm-hmm. we want to do is reach that when we think is that when we want to devise an intervention for a problem is to reach those that are going to be most at uh, at risk of engaging in the problem. And it is a thing that sometimes some of our interventions can be harmful. And it is interesting then to think that perhaps some of the interventions that are being enacted by um, institutions or uh, in society in general, kind of like cancel culture, may be having the opposite effect among people who kind of are seeking for an alternative point of view and looking. So rather than, you know, the more you vilify, fill in the blank, whoever, the more that person becomes um mythical in the eyes of the people who tend to agree more with that person yeah i think this i think this stuff is so interesting because i i was actually i was reading um brian resnick from vox wrote up an article that i can link to looking at a study that showed canvassing in a particular way Mm. on political issues Mm -hmm. um seemed to make an impact if you approached it through the script that was basically non-judgmental. You're trying to connect with the person's humanity to the to the marginalized group, um, and it's this approach I think that is look to looking to kind of reduce reactance. It actually reminded right. me a little of the psychological intervention, motivational interviewing. Exactly. Oops, and, I just hit my mic. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> um, and. And I think it's interesting. I also think it's just so hard because there's so many individual differences in how people respond Mm -hmm. to things that it makes it very hard to make these blanket statements. Like, you know, and that's why I do think the the study is important because those posters, you can imagine if someone was nervous about being that guy, right, they might see that and be like, now I'm really not going to be that guy Mm -hmm. or whatever it is. But you're right that it, it, if it's, um, it could be unhelpful or even harmful if that's, 
for the people who are more prone to do that anyway, a little like, um, like scared straight, right? And to make large leaps and things that seem like logically they should scare people out of going to prison, but didn't seem to be very effective interventions. Um, Which is why I think, I think science is so important. I think, you know, I, I think one of the hard things in these conversations is that sometimes people misuse arguments like saying, you're trying to get us to not criticize people mm-hmm. because because uh, you're saying that'll just make them more likely to dig in their heels. And it's not really about that. I mean, sometimes mm-hmm. you're not sometimes people are expressing opinions and it's not to persuade. But if they're trying if you're trying to persuade, it's helpful to know what actually affects the issue at hand. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So with Chappelle, I think, for example, is really interesting because I on Rotten Tomatoes. N equals 17 of critics, it's 35% <laughs> fresh, which is rotten. But uh-huh. the audience score, N of 40,000, 99%. Wow. Right. Pretty big discrepancy right. there. And I don't know why that is. I don't know if, do you think they're, are they yeah. looking for different things? Why is that? Yeah. I, you know, I, I haven't looked. The, so the scoring in Rotten Tomatoes is how many people? So the, for, for critics, uh-huh. it's, only 17 critics, but yeah. they didn't like it. It was like yeah. 35%. Right. For the audience, there are 40,000 plus yeah. people who rated it, and it's 99% liked it. Honestly, I wouldn't be surprised. You, well, you know, just variance, right? So there's 40,000 versus 17. 17. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, I think that's so, a, a so, very equal answer. <laughs> that seems, run a t-test on that real quick and see... <laughs> See, see, I'm pretty sure right now that your husband. We should say that we should say that your husband Keith um, is is uh, is a methodological whiz, yes. and he probably just you know his his soul died a little bit when I said run a t test <laughs> between two samples, one of seventeen and the other one of forty thousand. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Um, just to make sure, um, but um, and of course I am aware that that's not what you should do. Um, you should just eyeball it. Well, uh, eyeball it and speculate. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, but I seriously, think, I think it's it'd yeah. be interesting. I think that uh, the um, the critics, right, are they are susceptible to the very same pressures that everybody like us, that you know, or people who are in the public eye, and they're trying to be more perhaps even-handed versus the people who are you know into who already like Dave Chappelle and are going to be watching it, and then it's just a larger sample, so you're going to get more of that impact uh, just on the sample size, I guess. And, but also um, the types of, the types of reviews that we're expecting from people who contribute to Rotten Tomatoes, you know, the, 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 or to the newspapers that they are compiled in for Rotten Tomatoes versus, you know, er, you know, Joe average sitting at home and just hitting a thumbs up or down on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Yes, so, there's yeah. a there's a popcorn symbol which apparently is good. Is that, is that right? <laughs> it's, it's not so, even comes up anymore. They used to have like a, a, a similar as a Likert scale, which is stars, but now it's just thumbs up or thumbs down, and now it's just a popcorn. Well, that's the picture it has. You know, I think, but I mean, you're right. People having to come up with something to write about it versus people who are like, I kind of like this dude and I'm going to stream it on Netflix and hey, I'm going to hit a thumbs up or thumbs down might be different. But what did you think about some of the critiques of Chappelle that like he, you know, it seemed like the ones that point, like he, he talked about things that he shouldn't joke about, like, um, like 
the people who have who accused Michael Jackson Michael Jackson of sexually offending them. Which he, he by the way, yeah, it's it's one of those things that Dave Chappelle. I, I don't know if he gets away with, but it's like he manages to joke about that scandal as well. It was like holy crap, that it would be a career ender for many people. It is interesting how a person can go very quickly from being hailed as a hero of you know one side versus the other. And then if they say, and as comedians do, I, I will say that good comedy, good comedians, the ones that kind of are the ones that are able to poke both sides, you know, both bears equally. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they just pretty much piss off everybody, but they do it in a way that is funny. So when you ask about my, what, you know, what I thought about the, the, um, the, the editorials or the, the comments about his, this, his special, I thought that they were pretty much along those lines that for people for whom the more I would say the more conservative outlets, they tended to be like, here he, you know, you know what? Finally, somebody is actually somebody who is seen as as you know more aligned with the left is finally speaking truth to that side, and thank God for that person. And then this is this is a good thing. is refreshing. Whereas uh, other other outlets were more uh, quick to point that he had crossed the line and he'd done something wrong. And I do, I have to say that that is, um, as, as you mentioned, the expectations for comedy are different. You bring in different, different expectations. And I think that good comedy for me, you know, not, uh, I'm a, we both like, but for me, what really, I say comedian that is, does a really good job. And Patrice O'Neill really embodied this for me, but they does a really good job really as well. Was that, yeah, they point to something and I'm looking at the, the article, this is from the Atlantic. And uh, the, he's talking about the um, the uh, Rihanna. Is is it Rihanna or Rihanna? Yeah, Rihanna. I think. Yeah, it's, I think it's Rihanna. Besides, somebody was saying it the other way. I was like, why? Why are you saying it like that? But they I may be what, right. I don't know. But he says Chappelle acknowledged that he's uh, quote what is known in the streets as a victim blamer, mm-hmm. noting that his first response to Chris Brown's 2009 assault on Rihanna was to wonder what she had done. Now reading that, and I'm like. That's because it was awful, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, that assault was terrible. There was photographic evidence. I mean, there was this like prototypical case of domestic abuse, like nothing funny about that, right? Mm-hmm. And yet, what a comedian does, and you've heard this, you know, that comedy is time plus, no, wait, is it time? There's a com, there's a. Yeah, there's something the, the, about timing that time I and, haven't mastered. <laughs> <sorry, sorry. laughs> no. Comedy, comedy is, is time. Tragedy plus Tragedy time. Plus time. <laughs> That's ah, it. This is what we're not stand-up. <laughs> <laughs> this is what we are observers of stand-up as opposed to actual <laughs> comedians. Is that, yeah, you you take something that is difficult to point at and then you find a way to find a humorous aspect to it. And in this particular case, and again, just to make it, you know, there's nothing funnier than somebody explaining a joke to you. Oh. Let me do that. Uh, but to me, to me, what is interesting is I think that he takes... The, the the comedian has his his or her reaction about something, right? And then they explain because that's a reaction that many people have. And then either make a comment on how ridiculous it is, and then you know they say like, you know, I, I realize that this is insane for me to think about, but this, and then that's what kind of breaks the tension. It's like, ooh, this is something uncomfortable. But then then they, they say something funny in a way to kind of break the tension, and that's what makes comedy. It's like. It, you play with the with with the crowd's emotion, and you kind of watch this comfort and poke at it, and then deflate it, and then continue to do the same thing. And um, 
That's, yeah, sure. I think yeah. what you're saying is key because the idea is that he's acknowledging that he says something shocking, but then he acknowledges that like it's ridiculous or wrong. And I think Louis C.K. did a lot of humor like that and was given the benefit of the doubt until they're like, oh, wait, his behavior outside of this is actually bothersome. Right, right. It's it's so that's a it's a tough one and increasingly and actually we within a day this actually ties a little bit in the pop culture controversy that's going on right now it's unrelated to comedy but um, Kobe Bryant's death you know tragic death with his daughter and immediately so the, a lot of condolences there was issue but some of the people there were journal, journalists who pointed out that he had been accused of a sexual assault earlier in his life and then immediately there was a negative reaction to that and then a negative reaction to that negative reaction and that's kind of the tension is where at, at what point do we see and in the listserv that i that i'm in on the uh for atsa which that deals with a lot of the sex abuse stuff Somebody put a very good, I mean, almost like I wanted to write to her because she wrote a very thoughtful email regarding her reactions to it. But one of the things that really struck me is, like, you know, how can we just move on be, be beyond a person's war, you know, the worst thing that they've done in their life. So and to realize that people are far more than that. And I think we're in a time in, in history in which because of the instant gratification that Twitter provides and the speed in which headlines move and you know what get gets clicks it's outrage mm -hmm. so you're not really looking for nuance you really are not looking for how complex people can be but you're trying to just elicit that reaction without care about you know the fallout afterwards and i think what a lot of commentators both on the left and the right i will say this is one of the things in which you have those weird moments in which commentators on both sides are saying we should step back a little bit and really consider whether these immediate reactions, emotional reactions to events, and disregarding everything else about that person uh, is is warranted and helpful in, in the long term because we might be not just hurting that person's career but society overall. And I think that's that's a, that's a valuable point. It right? is. You're right. And that that pressure to respond immediately and confidently yeah. acts against that. Yeah, and that's and that's you know, and I, I said it in a very kind of professorial way, but that's I think that's exactly what Chappelle and uh, Bill Maher and other ones are saying. They're they're willing to kind of just poke at, at that side and also are upsetting people who consider who you know whatever they see themselves on one side or the other. And I say you, you shouldn't be joking about or saying this or saying that. And like, well, you know. The reaction that you're having may be exaggerated and taking down people's careers, overlooking everything else they've done because of something they said a while ago while they were maturing may, may not be warranted. So, I do think that's part of, I mean, I thought about this with regard to Kobe Bryant and maybe more what we'll talk about next episode is yeah. just also this idea of like what is what is the threshold to cross to make up for past mistakes? And some people yeah. believe it's forever. And, and right. I think others, I mean, maybe particularly our stances in psychology are that people can, can change and that they can, you know, and, and I understand why some people wouldn't have that view based on yeah. their own experiences and the historical experiences that they've had. But no, I, 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 I think, I think you're right. I honestly, that's part of why I like podcast form because I don't, tend to put out a lot of tweets right after something happens. Right. I have opinions about things, but it actually takes me a while to think through them. And I think that podcasts at least allow a little more 
discussion about it without kind of yeah. just these brief bullet points. Yeah, it's a tough one. It's a, that's honestly that's one of the reasons that I've been reluctant to because I certainly have put my foot in my mouth several times in my life. Uh, and it makes it so easy to put your foot in your mouth. But most of the times you do it in a small setting mm-hmm. and it, or, you know, whatever. And it's just, it's for, it disappears. Anything on Twitter, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the, the, the damage that you can bring up to yourself for an error for being human can be just outsized. And I think, uh, John Ronson, uh, who's a writer, he, he wrote, I think he wrote a book called uh, So You've Been Shamed or something like that. Mm-hmm. Or he started with an article regarding that. He's like wh- people whose lives have been uh, just transformed for something. And like, you know, again, is that maybe despicable, maybe hateful, you know, whatever that. But that person said something goofy or bad or wrong for which they feel bad and would like to amend. But is the reaction that the rest of the world is having one that is warranted? And that is something that. I know some commentators on the medium have talked about this. You know, maybe we're we eventually we're going to learn it. Right now, we're in the middle of that process, like kind of calibrating mm-hmm. um, what is an accurate reaction. So I don't know. Yeah, on that and note, I, and please follow people... us on Twitter. We're <laughs> 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 just impulsively fire off broad, confident statements. Exactly. <laughs> I we think... barely glance at headlines and just pop off. <laughs> exactly. That's right. That's the trade-off. Is that we'll be several weeks, months, years behind the news. (laughs) At least we've, we've thought it through. Fortunately, things continue recurring. You know, it was our third episode. We'll be on the Peloponnesian war. (laughs) Hold on for that. (laughs) I I do think like some of the discussions of cancel culture are are difficult because there are people who are vulnerable to actually losing positions. And I do think whatever you want to call it, call it Sullivan did not have something meaningful to him renewed for something that I view as unfair. Chappelle, I think, has, in his style, just made more jokes about his critics. So, like, That's I don't... It. I don't think this know, is helpful. You know, in reactions, like, whatever, you, know, you may want to scream more, but I'm like, I don't think this is... I think it's called the Streisand effect. It's like, this is yeah. not making him less popular. No, in fact, Sticks and Stones, I thought he made, like, a... a pretty harsh unfunny joke about trying to say like uh, about i mean he talked about a lot of things so you yeah, you pick yeah. what it was but i do I remember mean, that i was talking about that i was like ooh. yeah when he was talking about like there's some inherent funniness about being born in, in the wrong body I, I don't have it in front of me but the um he does go through he talks about an activist that approached him afterwards he was a trans activist and then and uh, he thought it was harsh but then had this moment of you know, rapprochement that like he heard listened to her and then he kind of modified his own his own um routine based on that interaction and that later that uh that he kind of just kind of did a, uh, a shout out to her later um and that kind of helped her and i i honestly should look it up because i don't remember if she died by it so like he mentioned her specifically because of a tragic circumstance afterwards. Daphne Dorman, 44, was thanked in the credits of Sticks and Stones, which premiered in August. In August, so yeah, he mentions that, and then it's intense, right? Because I think it's really the encapsulation of why people get understandably upset is because the trans community is, you know, there are statistically at much higher risk of dying by suicide, right? And they're saying mm-hmm. the jokes that you make and are part of the environment by which we feel. That that contributes to problems associated with it with being a member of this community, and at the same time, let's see, 
yeah, here she is written by. So I think she tweeted out. The news comes weeks after Dorman received a shout out from comedian Dave Chappelle in Netflix Sticks and Stones. The live special shot at the Tabernacle in Atlanta and released August 26 was widely panned by critics, including several who's deemed, who deemed some of its jokes racist and transphobic. But in an addendum to the special, Chappelle spoke about his friendship with a trans woman who he claimed was laughing the hardest at his jokes. That woman turned out to be Dorman, whose name and photo appear in the credits of Sticks and Stones. Uh, and then Dorman, a native of Philadelphia, acknowledged her mention in the film on Instagram. And then she died by suicide. And then, unfortunately, she died uh, by suicide a few a few weeks later. Oh yeah, my let's gosh. see. Yeah, and she go, and so here she yeah on her Instagram says yeah you know. It's just that moment when you realize that after Dave Chappelle talks about meeting you in the secret ending of his Netflix special, you see your photo appears immediately after Barack Obama's photo in the credits. Super poignant. You know what? That's a perfect segue to start maybe with Tom, right? Sounds good. You know, because what is the you know it's like what is the effect of mm -hmm. the, of these jokes and effects you know uh, on reality and on mm -hmm. real? And what do the data have to say about that? Mm -hmm. 